So it's Labor Day, the summer is over, I'm back at work at school, I'm a teacher, but one of the things I got to do this summer uh, with a chunk of the family was to go back to visit my mom where I grew up in my hometown in New Hampshire. And one of the things that I always do when I get to go back to my hometown is I make sure that I walk by the house that I grew up in. My family doesn't live in it anymore. But I, I lived in this house for the first 16, 17 years of my life. And, and it's, it's a 19th century New England beauty straight out of this old house. The layout is tall. It's interesting. It's just a great place. But when I lived in it, it the whole thing got overwhelming for my dad uh, and for my family. And, and through circumstances I'm not going to share with you, but it was completely overwhelming. Uh, it's a two-story house. The roof was so high and so steep that it was impossible to get up there and plug all the ways that critters could get in. And so in this story, I remember this vividly from when I was a kid, but now that I'm a dad, like the story cracks me up. So my bedroom wall, uh, my bedroom shared a wall with my parents' bedroom and we had this like drop ceiling and I'd be sleeping, sleeping. I'd be trying to sleep, be lying there and, and I'd hear this in the ceiling. And of course, then I would get up and I'd go and I'd knock on my dad, parents' door and I'd walk in and of course he's lying in bed. And I'm like, dad, there's something in the ceiling. And I mean, I can't even tell you how much sympathy I feel for my dad. At this, looking back on it, I mean, what's the poor guy supposed to do? Like, whatever that is in the ceiling, it's nine o'clock at night, and he is not taking care of it right now, right? And how's he supposed to take care of it anyway? I mean, how's he supposed to get up there? I mean, there's so many profound, who knows what it is? It was probably bats. Anyway, or mice, or who knows, right? But they, he convinced me to go back to bed, and I would go there. But this is just part of living in this house, and so it just eventually, and like I said, circumstances I'm not going to tell you, completely overwhelming. And so stuff would break. Like there was a time I got in an argument with my brother and he chucked his baseball glove at me and I ducked and it hit the window and broke the window. Now there were storm windows behind it and so we never fixed the window. There was the time I had an unrighteous temper tantrum in my bedroom and tried to smash a fly and I broke the window. And again, we never fixed the window because at least there was a storm window. The whole thing was just completely overwhelming. The roof began to leak and it really leaked through the top floor into the bottom floor so that our dining room was just, half of it was towels and Tupperware catching all the leaks that were coming through. And then there was the, the, the classic, my friends like this one the most, beautiful wraparound porch, and they had these posts, and the post was no longer attached to the top. Like, if you had given a good whack, the whole thing would have fallen over. I don't know what would happen to the porch, but my dad had, had and I love my father, and again, sympathy here, but he had he put a, a, a notch in the ceiling or a hook in the ceiling and a hook on the thing and put basically a shoelace, what amounted to a boot shoelace, and tied it to the ceiling, and that was, that was how it was going to be. So eventually we moved, and then amazingly, it got worse uh, with the next owners. And so each year that I would go back and return and look at my old home, it, it grew more and more horrific. And at this point, it's more and more amusing to me. So for a few years, I have it on a good source that the police were watching this place for one of those places. They thought maybe it was a meth house. It, it had that look to it. The, the folks who lived in it after us turned the front yard, the place where I used to play catch with my dad, they turned it into a parking lot, not by paving it, but by parking a, a, a prolific number of vehicles on the sidewalk and the lawn and everywhere else. And so the grass turned into you know, dirt and whatnot. 
the four, you have to imagine like beautiful New England home, the four beautiful maple trees that lined the front of the yard eventually died. I'm going to make the assumption that they didn't kill the trees, but eventually they died. And instead of trying to like plant new trees or do anything like that, they, they cut them off, not at the stump, but about like seven or eight feet up. They're just cut off. And so now you have like seven feet of like what used to be a maple tree in the front yard. So that's classy. The, the wraparound porch, you can't even see anymore because now they've sort of given up. I'm not even entirely sure what they're trying to do, but there's just a big blue tarp hanging from the ceiling down in front of the wraparound porch, and you can't see most of the house anymore. The separate garage looks like a sneeze would make it fall over. There's a camper parked in the middle of the backyard. The weeds have reached past the wheels and up onto the sides of the camper. You get the idea. What I want you to do with this random bit of my experience is just, just hang on to it. Just hang on to it. Uh, I'm not going to try to segue it. We're just going to let it sit there for a little while. Uh, I'll come back to it. Instead, what I want to do is jump right into our text. Now, I know Nate just read it, but I want to read it again because it's pretty short and it's not going to take long. But this is what we're looking at today. We're looking at 1 John chapter 4. We're only going to look at verses 7 through 10. I restrained myself. Uh, the temptation, of course, was to finish all of chapter 4, but I thought, you know, there's some things I really want us to to take the time to look at today. And so we're just going to read verses 7 through 10 of 1 John 4. Again, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So our, our, our text this morning begins with, with this imperative, right? That, that It's an encouragement. Let us love one another. Now, if this sounds familiar, then you're probably listening to John and have been listening as we preached through 1 John. For example, chapter 3, verse 11, John wrote, This is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Then there's chapter 3, verse 18. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And there's chapter 3, verse 23. This is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. It's quite obviously a core idea of this epistle, right? It is one that this idea has been raised by the context into which John is writing there has been a lack of love shown by a group who have splintered off of the churches that John had planted, and they had sown discord in the church that remained. They claimed to know God, but they did not obey God's commands, and clearly and openly, they did not love the people in God's church. So, so in our text, what John is doing here is he is returning to this idea of loving one another. And he's encouraging the church that remains to do so. But he's not just repeating himself as if he was not sure that they heard him and he's beating it into their heads. This time, as John brings up this idea of let us love one another, his task is to help the church know what this love is and why they should love one another. And why? And the reason that they should love one another is given very clearly in verse 7, right? It's, it's the source of this love. For love, John says, is from God. Now, if God is like this, that's how we should want to be, right? 
If that's how God is, then we should want to be that way. It's a very similar line of logic that Paul uses, for example, in Ephesians 5.1, when he says, be imitators of God as beloved children. So if God is like that, that's how we should want to be. Now, John's next comment that is actually one that can sort of confound us, right? He says, love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God. He says, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Now, just to read that line alone seems like it means whoever loves could mean absolutely anyone, even an unbeliever, right? And so if that's the case, you read a line like that, and it feels like, well, what that would mean is that anyone who loves... Even a person who professes hatred for Jesus Christ has thereby been born of God. But how can that be so? Makes a little sense, right? Well, the short answer is, well, it can't be so. That can't be what John means at all. At least it can't unless you completely tear the phrase off the pages of Scripture and post it on a wall somewhere absent of any context. So so what do we make of it? Just real quickly before we kind of dive back into the, the core of what we need to know today. Well, two times in the preceding verses up to here, John has explained that believing in Jesus is absolutely essential for salvation. For example, what we just read a moment ago in 323, he had written, and this is his commandment, that... We believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. And then in 4.2, John writes, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So, So it's absolutely clear that believing in Jesus is an essential aspect of being a child of God. And there's no reason to think that John has suddenly changed his mind about that in verse 7 of chapter 4. Well, then what does he mean when he says, Whoever loves has been born of God? What does he mean? Well, let's just kind of think of it this way. If I look at my family today when church is over and I say, well, let's stop at Horatio's. I'll buy ice cream for whoever wants it. I'll buy ice cream for whoever wants it. No one is going to mistake me for thinking that I am offering to buy the entire church or town of Custer ice cream. No one's going to think that I said that, right? Maybe because they don't know me. Maybe, maybe that doesn't reflect well on me that no one's going to make that mistake, right? But no one's going to think that. It's plenty obvious to all that what I mean is whoever in my family wants ice cream. The whoever applies to the group that I'm considering in that particular moment. So in the context of John's letter, what's the group that he's considering, all right? He's helping the churches that he's planted to discern who is a believer and who is not. He wants his readers to be encouraged, right? Those who are reading and receiving this letter, he wants them to be encouraged that they, in fact, are genuine believers. We've discussed that in previous passages. He wants them to understand that that splinter group, the one who's causing division, who refuse to love or obey Christ's commands, he wants them to understand that those folks are not genuine. And, And so within the context of this epistle, he is helping his readers discern which professing believer is actually legit, right? Which of these groups, which of these these professing believers, these people who are naming the name of Christ, naming the name of God, which one is actually legit? He's not thinking about all the people in the world. He's helping to find which of these groups under consideration are born of God. And the answer is, it's the group that loves. Whoever loves is born of God. Now, okay, There's just some clarity on a a phrase, an expression that I think in our translation uh, can be a little bit confusing. But we want to move on and get back into what what John is ultimately trying to do. Because that's not ultimately what he has in mind for us to grasp. The idea here is that we as believers must love. We as believers must love. And I say must because verse 8 shows that if we don't love, 
we have never actually met God. Look at verse 8 again. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Well, why is that? Because God is love. So an encounter with God and his love absolutely changes us. It must. And I say must, not in a way that should build some kind of fear in you. It must do this, as if this is something you must do or else. That's not how I'm using the word must. It's a a must because God's love is so powerful that in encountering it, you can't help but be changed. You can't help it. It's a must like saying, whatever goes up must come down, right? It's, it must come down because here on earth, gravity is so powerful, you can't resist it, right? That's what we mean by must. And if you're currently thinking of exceptions to what doesn't come down, you've distracted yourself from the point and pushed the analogy in the wrong direction. You know, for those of us who follow Christ, this should actually be encouraging as you walk this, this long road of discipleship. Because as, as you strive to, as we often say it here, to put on Christ, as you seek to imitate God, as you seek to live a better life, it can be attempting to, to shift your attention and energies toward techniques, toward techniques. Your efforts, which are good, but your efforts can start to sound like a series of, of articles for a Christian website. What are the three techniques I need for improving my evangelism? Are, are there five ways to get more out of my Bible reading? What four things can I do to steady myself when I doubt? But techniques are not ultimately what changes you. It's not techniques that ultimately changes you. And I don't think we can overstate this. To know God, to know God, and we're talking about that rich and full understanding of know here, right? The kind that involves experiencing someone, not just knowing about them. To know God is to be changed. To know God is to be changed. Okay, now I want to I tour through the text, and I have some more things to say about similar ideas here eventually. But, but I want to I park on the statement, move on, excuse me, to the statement of God is love. Because the, the statement God is love is ripe for confusion. It can be interpreted in so many different ways, with so many little addendums and qualifiers potentially added to it, that, that misunderstanding is almost unavoidable when you just say God is love. But John is is not going to be undone by this kind of misunderstanding. Immediately after he makes the statement, God is love, he explains what this love is that God is. He's not going to let it be misunderstood. He explains it through example by definition. John says, basically, we've seen it. We've seen it. Let me remind you about the perfect picture of what God's love is, of what love is. It's his sending Jesus to us so that we might not die in judgment, but live through Christ. There's a paraphrase of what he's telling us to right here. So really, what that means is that of all the things that John could, could reach for to, to reveal the love of God to us, what did he reach for? He reached for the cross. And of course, the incarnation that makes the cross possible. He didn't reach for for any of the kind and loving deeds that Jesus did. Not to the healings or the feedings or the casting out of demons. Not to Jesus' teachings or his compassionate weeping or to his dining with tax collectors or sinners. Those are all acts of love. But once again, John has made the cross the centerpiece. Before the cross, all scripture moves toward it. 
And we think of the timeline of Scripture. When you go before the cross, all Scripture is moving toward the cross inexorably. And after it, all Scripture simply radiates from it like there's been some sort of nuclear explosion. The cross is the center of Scripture. The cross is the center of history. And John puts it right at the middle of this statement that God is love. And you know, I also find it interesting when we, when we look at how John describes it, that John attributes the source of love to whom? To the Father. To the Father. Now, I'm going to admit it out loud. I'll be the one to admit it out loud in your heart if you want to raise your hand if this has ever happened to you. But maybe some of you are in the same situation. When I think about the love of God, I tend to jump immediately to Jesus. I tend to jump immediately to Jesus. And that's good. That's right. For example, 2 Corinthians 5.14 asserts, for the love of Christ controls us. So there's nothing wrong with my jumping immediately to Christ when I think of God's love. But, but what can happen is even in my, my adoration of Jesus, I can accidentally, and it's an accident, but it can happen, I can accidentally create some sort of a, a false characterization within the Trinity itself. As if the Father is the source of, of wrath and judgment, and then, and then Jesus is the source of love. Right? Good cop, bad cop, right within the Trinity somehow. You know, you know that kind of thinking could, could lead us to say, well, thank goodness for Jesus, because if we were left with just the Father, man, we would be in trouble. But, but John knows that this is not so. John knows that this is not so, because the Father is the one who sent the Son. And in each of these verses here, John attributes the source of the love to the Father who sent the Son to us. So then, to make things extra clear, John asserts that this love is not something that we're doing, but something that God has done. It's not that we loved God, right? But that he loved us. And his love for us is expressed in God sending his son to be a, a substitute for us. That's that word, a propitiation for our sins. That, that word propitiation, we're going to dig into a little further in a moment. But for now, we'll just observe that it, that it points to the cross, right? To Jesus dying on the cross so that those who believe in him don't have to. Okay, I kind of toured through the text, right? We kind of toured through the entirety of the text. But I want to, I want to take the rest of my time, and I, I know we have a bunch left, to make two extended observations about these verses. So I wanted to walk through the whole thing, because in order to make these observations, I sort of have to pull from everything. So I wanted to make sure we sort of toured the whole text first. And so, so these two ideas I want to share with us today. One is this. The, this love of God is transformative. This love of God is transformative. You know, we observed earlier that God's love must change you. It transforms you. And what we saw there was that God's love does not leave you the same as it, as it found you. Once you've encountered it, once you've experienced it, your, your automatic response, your, the inexorable response is to love as well. It's to love as well. It's so guaranteed that you will love as well that John declares it a marker of genuine belief. It's, it's not the only marker, but it is a crucial one, an essential one, according to John. But you know, that's not the only place in our text that this transformative element is apparent. In verse 9, we see that God sent his son that we might live through him. Well, that word live represents a significant transformation. For example, in Ephesians 2.1, we read about our status without Jesus. It's described this way. You were 
dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So we were dead, and in the Son we live. And for John, that means eternal life, right? Well, that's a pretty big transformation from death to life. Plus, within our text, we also have this propitiation business, that big word, propitiation. Now, now if you are not a Christian, if you don't name the name of Christ, and you wonder what it means to be one, this right here is probably the, the two and a half, three minutes of the sermon to listen to, because propitiation is the heart of what it means to be a Christian. Before you confess faith and belief in Jesus, you are a sinner. And a sinner is one who has rejected God's rule and law. And just like with Adam, the penalty for such rebellion is death. But, but, but in the Old Testament, God shares with us a, a way out, right? A way out, a way that one can, can substitute something else for your penalty, for your death penalty. And, and, and so we read in Leviticus and elsewhere in the Old Testament that that something else that can be substituted is an animal. It's an animal, but then, but then we read after the cross in the New Testament, for example, in Hebrews, we read that this animal sacrifice could never be a permanent solution. And so Hebrews 10.4 says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to, to take away sins. So what we know then is that Jesus presented himself as the ultimate substitute. So Jesus then was the one that all those animal sacrifices were, were pointing toward. They were just a, a shadow of the true things, and Christ was the true thing. And Christ's sacrifice doesn't just buy you time and, and put off God's wrath for a time. It actually, it actually extinguishes that wrath for good. And so Hebrews 10.14 says it this way, By a single offering, he, that is Christ, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So that's what's happening when John is referencing propitiation. We deserve wrath and we have earned judgment. And Jesus substitutes himself and dies for us. And that then, in the words of Hebrews, perfects us for all time. That's a significant transformation. That's a significant transformation. And it's ongoing. It's continual. Those of you who name the name of Christ know full well that God is not done with you yet. Thus we read in that same passage in Hebrews 10, 14, there's a, a present tense use for sanctification, right? Uh, which is the word we use to describe our being made holy, sanctification. So we, saw, we heard in that verse, those who are being sanctified. It's still in progress. It's still in progress. Now, okay, this, this transformative element of God's love is, as far as I can tell, one of the key areas where the world, as we call it, those who are opposed to Christ, where the world misunderstands love. This is this transformative element. I think that the world understands and expresses often, with poignancy, the idea of unconditional love. But, but too frequently, the world's conception of love's power is, is anemic. It doesn't grasp the power of God's love to, to transform Instead, it says, love me the way I am. That's the unconditional love. And affirm me in it, no matter what. And in that is the assumption that, that, that change is bad, that change is actually bad. But, but I'm not sure that the world's version of unconditional love actually even holds up to scrutiny. And so I want you to be patient with me for a little while while I explore this idea in a little bit of depth. 
Now, I'm actually going gonna, gonna to share with you to, to go about this. Okay, so we're going to take, take a couple steps back and then work back towards that idea again. Uh, be patient with me while I explore this. I want to share a poem with you from a guy named Billy Collins. It's not a devotional poem. It's not a Christian poem. I have no reason to believe that Collins is a Christian. But I'm not sharing his poem as an example of bad thinking. Right? So you don't have to be on guard while you're hearing this poem here. You're going to see where I'm going with it in a moment. The poem is called The Lanyard. And I'm going to read the whole thing. And as I read it, I hope that you'll especially appreciate where, where the poem lands, where it finishes. Because while the poem travels through some humorous side views, it ends with a, a tender tribute to a mother's unconditional love for her children. All right, That's where this lands. And if you're sort of sitting there sort of in your heart grumbling a little bit that I'm reading an entire poem up here, just, just work with me. Uh, I've got a purpose with this. Dan's not here, so you know, look what happens. Dan leaves and I read a whole poem. So this is, this is called The Lanyard by Billy Collins. He writes, The other day, I was ricocheting slowly off the blue walls of this room, moving as if underwater from typewriter to piano, from bookshelf to an envelope lying on the floor, when I found myself in the L section of the dictionary, where my eyes fell upon the word lanyard. No cookie nibbled by a French novelist could send one into the past more suddenly a past where I sat at a workbench at a camp by a deep Adirondack lake, learning how to braid long, thin plastic strips into a lanyard, a gift for my mother. I had never seen anyone use a lanyard or wear one, if that's what you did with them, but that did not keep me from crossing strand over strand again and again until I had made a boxy red and white lanyard for my mother. She gave me life and milk from her breasts, and I gave her a lanyard. She nursed me in many a sick room, lifted spoons of medicine to my lips, laid cold face cloths on my forehead, and then led me out into the airy light and taught me to walk and swim. And I, in turn, presented her with a lanyard. Here are thousands of meals, she said, and here is clothing and a good education. And here is your lanyard, I replied, which I made with a little help from a counselor. Here is a breathing body and a beating heart, strong legs, bones, and teeth, and two clear eyes to read the world, she whispered. And here, I said, is the lanyard I made at camp. And here, I wish to say to her now, is a smaller gift not the worn truth that you can never repay your mother, but the rueful admission that when she took the two-toned lanyard from my hand, I was as sure as a boy could be that this useless, worthless thing I wove out of boredom would be enough to make us even. Okay, now, I have been reading this poem in classes for I, I don't even know how many years, probably 20, 20 years. And never has anyone somehow objected to or rejected Colin's thoughts on motherhood or on love, okay? Everyone that I have heard responds in some manner of, of appreciation or agreement as if to say, yes, that is love. And maybe even with uh, inside their own heads, like, and I also should call my mom, right? And, and I too agree with what Collins portrays the, is love. And that's part of why I enjoy the poem so much. But, but here's, again, now let me show you where I wanted to go and why I bring it up. Here's what I think that the world does with an idea like what Collins has. 
The world says this mom loves her son unconditionally. She she receives her son's lousy gift as if it were priceless. And therefore, unconditional love is what love is. And then it says, and this applies forever, no matter what, no exceptions. But here's the rub. Then I wonder this. What if Collins wrote a follow-up poem to this one? It could be called Mom's 68th Birthday. And in this poem, the speaker, who is now reflecting on a time when he is 40 years old, again sends his mother a lanyard for her birthday. This time it's a lanyard that he made at an ill-conceived team-building exercise at work. Would we look at the speaker the same? Would his mother? I mean, sure, the mother would still love her son, but I'm guessing she'd also be asking some questions about where she went wrong and, and, and whether this was her fault that her 40-year-old son still thinks it's okay to send her a lanyard for her birthday. Because there are things that we consider forgivable for the 12-year-old that, that we aren't so willing to look past for 40-year-olds. We expect people to grow up. We expect them to mature. We expect them to transform. And while we love unconditionally, is it loving to encourage our children to stay as they are, stilted for the rest of their lives? Now, forgive me for spending so much time on this idea with the poem, but I think it's crucial because I think that the world is sharing its its own ideas about love. And it's very challenging to discern what to make of it. Because what we, we hear the world say things that are true. I mean, Billy Collins says some things that are true about love. But then we hear the world say some other things, and, and somehow then they, they, they mix them together, and the conclusions are so different than, than what the Bible says that it's hard to know what went wrong and where. It's hard to know what went wrong and where. And as it concerns love and the things that I hear frequently about love, I think that this unconditional love element isn't actually the problem. I think that the the problem is how this conception of unconditional love, when attached to an insistence that there's no need to change, strips away the transformative nature of the love that God has shown. So frequently when the world says love unconditionally, it does mean love people but it also means love how people are, no exceptions. And again, that's what is often meant when someone tags on no exceptions, like God loves everyone, no exceptions. I mean, mean, that's usually what was actually meant. So, So it changes things. The world has a different conception. So years ago, many churches used to say things like this, come as you are, come as you are. Now, the churches that I think about when I say that, because I know some churches that did that, the churches that I think of who said that, I think they meant, when they said, come as you are, what we would hope they meant. I mean, they meant you don't have to clean up before coming to church. You don't have to try to be good first, right? We're all sinners here. Come, and then come as you are, and we'll figure it out from there. That's what they meant, right? But here's the thing about the world when they hear, come as you are. The world won't think that that is loving unless you mean stay as you are. The world doesn't mean come as you are. The world means stay as you are. Now, it's very easy as I talk about this for us to think in terms of the splashy cultural touch points, sex, gender, etc. And while I am convinced that what I'm saying can help us think through those issues, I'm also concerned that we would stop there, that that's all you would think about when you think about this. 
because the world will also uh, tell you things that, that are going to work. Okay, because I'm concerned. Okay, where's the concern? The concern, though, is that if we don't think more fully about this, we, we'll miss how this idea can work its way into our regular thinking, right? Because the world will also tell you that, that if people love you, then they will love your personality, including its anger and self-centeredness. That if people love you, they will love your appetites, even if they include sex outside of biblical marriage and adultery and whatever, and whoever happens to be the hottest person who's near you and giving you attention lately. If people love you, they will love that you prioritize yourself above all others because you love yourself before you can love your neighbor. And what all these have in common is, is that they have no idea or interest in change. There is no thought of transformation. They're stuck. They're stuck. You are what you are, and that's it. But that's not what God's love does. God's love changes you. It transforms you. Now, I've made it clear earlier that I think that the unconditional aspect of love that the world frequently upholds is actually something worth appreciating. And that's what I like about Billy Collins' poem, for example. But I want to turn back to our, our text again a little bit more. And I want to notice what John articulates. That, I want us to notice this. What John articulates is so much more than unconditional love. It's so much more than that. And so here's the second observation. The first was that God's love is transformative. Here's the second observation. This love of God is, is initiating. This, this love of God is initiating. And it's initiating toward the undeserving. So, so when I think about unconditional love, I think it actually is kind of interesting that most examples of unconditional love still involve something that actually initiates the love in the first place. So for example, I love my best friend unconditionally. Well, why? Because he's my best friend. And friends stick with each other through thick and thin. But underneath it, at the beginning, what initiated it? Well, at the source, something made him my friend to begin with. You love your spouse unconditionally. Well, why? Because at some point in time, something about your spouse won you over. Their looks, a smile, a laugh, a batch of cookies. A mother loves her son unconditionally. Well, why? Well, yeah, simply for being her son, sure. But also, he was her little baby. He was adorable and completely, wonderfully dependent upon her for years. And so in this sense, then, the unconditional part in all these senses comes after a certain condition created it. Now, now the, of course, one problem with this unconditional love in our experience is that it almost always has its limits. We say unconditional love, but it almost always has its limits. You push it far enough and you discover the conditions. A wife has unconditional love for her husband until she finds out he's been cheating on her for years and years. Uh, 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 I dare say even a mother's love can be pushed to the breaking point, given the right transgressions, and so on. But, but more important than those limits is I want to go back to the initiating aspect. It's how our human experience requires some kind of winning of love to get the unconditional love. How can I make someone love me unconditionally? Is that not the call of so many people's hearts? I want unconditional love. How can I get to a place where someone will love me unconditionally? Is not that what an orphan is crying out? The person who's supposed to love me unconditionally didn't love me unconditionally. And they're crying out with their heart. How can I make someone love me like that? 
That's a painful longing of the heart. And it's a human experience. But this is not so with God. This love that John is describing as fundamental to who God is, so that he would say, God is love. This is not that we loved God. At no time, in no minuscule way, did we ever do anything that won over God's love. It wasn't that we were adorable babies. It wasn't that we were God's friend. It wasn't that, that God used his all-knowing omniscience, right, and looked into the future and saw deep inside of us the potential for loving him. It wasn't anything that we did that made this love. And, and this fact that you did nothing to earn God's love, far from depressing us and sending us into a, a spiral of self-hatred, this is so magnificently good for us. This is so magnificently good for us because that love of God then is not built on that one good thing about you or that one good thing that you did, that one good thing deep inside you. If it were built on that one good thing deep inside you, what a fright when you lost that good thing. What a fright when you, when you did enough bad that it outweighed that one good thing inside you. We'd override it. We would find a way to discover the condition of the love. But no, it was entirely 100% that God loved us. From beginning to end, our salvation is a story of God's love for us, not our love for God. It was God's sacrifice. It was his sending of his son as a substitute that disposes of your sin. It was his initiative that lets you live through Christ. It was his initiative that lets you live for Christ. Okay, I got a couple more thoughts to share, but I want to I wander back to my opening story about my house, my childhood home again. A, a long time ago, back in like the 19th century, right? 1800s, that house was made to be amazing. And at a certain point in time, my family lived in it, and it must be admitted we worked toward ruining it. And then another family moved in, and as I am constantly emphasizing, they took even bigger strides toward ruining it. And so here's how the world's love works. Here's how the world's love works. It says to my dad and me, I see your house there with the broken windows and the pests in the ceiling, with the leaky roof and the peeling paint, and I love it. I love it. Those things don't matter to me. It's beautiful just the way it is. And then it says to the new owners, I see what you've done with the place. Cutting off those maple trees and converting the lawn to a parking lot. Draping that tarp across the porch and leaving the garage to lean with the times. Those things are what makes the house unique. And I love it. It's beautiful. It's who you are. It's who it is. I knew that house was falling apart when we moved out of it. How is that helpful to tell me it was beautiful? How is that helpful to the people who live there now? They don't think it's beautiful. They don't know what to do with the thing. It completely overwhelms them. Completely overwhelms them. But the love of God doesn't work like that. The love of God doesn't work like that. It says to my dad and to me and to the people who own the house now, I see what you've done with that house there. 
I see the way its original beauty is disappearing beneath decay and your embarrassing additions. I see the way it completely overwhelms you and you are at an absolute loss for how to maintain it. And I know that you know this is true. But I love that house. And I'm going to fix it. And though it's going to cost me more to fix it than you have ever thought it was even possible to pay, I'm going to pay that price. And since I'm going to pay that price, you had better believe I'm going to succeed. You had better believe it's going to work. Because when I'm through with it, that house is going to be more beautiful than it's ever been. You'll recognize it, but you'll be so amazed at the change from now until then that you won't be able to stop talking about it because it's going to be so amazing. You see, God's love initiates a great sacrifice to our benefit, and it it transforms us. In love, God refuses to settle for how we are now, sin-wracked and suffering. He doesn't tolerate you. He doesn't put up with you. He doesn't have buyer's remorse after setting you apart from before the foundation of the world. He's love. And the love that God is, is way past unconditional. It doesn't even need a condition to begin. It began before a condition could be conjured while we were still sinners. And he tracks down those whom he calls to himself and he pursues them in the depths of their sin, in the depths of their loneliness, in the depths of their depression, while they're stuck in the, in the mire of discouragement. And he will not leave you the way he found you. He will not leave you the way he found you. You don't have to stay that way. And in Christ, you won't. We can look forward to his glory, and we will share in it. This is a great hope, and I pray that it transforms us today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the love that you have shown us in Christ. Father, you sent your son. You sent your son to those who rebelled against you, who rejected your rule, who cared nothing for you, and you initiated this love. You have sought us out. You have pursued us. We are the sheep that has gone astray. We are the coin that was lost. And you, Lord, are the shepherd who went and found us. You are the woman who turned her house upside down to find us. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to be grateful for that, that your love would change us. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.